morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Mark. If you uh, brought your Bible, I'd love it if you'd turn there. Mark chapter 8, near the end of the chapter, we'll be uh, reading, actually starting about verse 27 or so. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, uh, there's some paperback Bibles around you. I'd love it if you'd hunt those down and uh, turn to that passage with us. I know that we have a number of the kids who are with us that are normally in Crosspoint Kids this, uh, this morning. I'm glad that you're here on this first Sunday of the month, also the first Sunday of the year. We're really glad that uh, you're joining us and we'd love it if you'd follow along with us in the scriptures. Brothers and sisters and parents, feel free to lean over and help them find their way through the scripture this morning. As Matt mentioned, um, I uh, am not feeling the greatest this morning. Went to bed last night a little early. I know that that's the night you're supposed to uh, stay up late, uh, but I uh, was sick in the night and woke up weak this morning. But uh, I wouldn't normally mention that to you, but a couple things um, around that I hope uh, lend us a bit of an illustration and some focus for the coming year. That... Um, the, the, the cross point coast is, is planted and predicated on the reality of the gospel. That when Sandy and I showed up in Brevard County and started meeting a, a few precious people, the Hardys certainly uh, among them, um, we sought out not to plant a church, but rather to plant the gospel. And it was our belief and desire that the Lord God, by means of his gospel, would plant and grow up his church, that we truly wanted to be a gospel-centered gathering of believers uh, about ministry in this county for the sake of the glory of the Lord and the good of the people that he would call to himself. And uh, in the process of that, um, we've made a number of decisions, and now the elders are, are in on, on making those decisions, the community group leaders and all the partners of Coast are, are making decisions to do things in such a way that as much as possible, it's obvious. It's not just a true, but it's obvious to all who are watching that if there's anything that is good, if there's anything transforming, if there's anything beautiful about what is happening at Cross Point Coast, it is because of the Lord. It is because of His gospel. And here we are on the first Sunday of 2017, uh, the year that's going to be the best year ever because we're going to do it all right this time. You know what I mean? Um, and I wake up sicker than a dog calling uh, Matt Hardy saying, have something ready. I don't know. Um, and... Uh, and, and it just reminded me that, that Cross Point Coast is not planted on anyone's ability. Uh, it, it's not, in fact, Matt, even in praying for me this morning, Cross Point Coast is not planted on um, even preaching. It's planted on the gospel that is preached. And he's ordained these means. And so uh, I wanted to hold that out before us this morning. It's actually the very center of the message this morning that um, the gospel is at the center of everything that we are, everything that we do, everything that we believe to be good uh, as we gather together in 2017. The title of the message from Mark chapter 8, at the end of the chapter there, is um, the gospel at the center of gospel-centered. 
So if you've been around Crosspoint for a little while, if you've been around maybe Acts 29 church planting uh, network or uh, around these churches very much, you, you'll, you'll hear the word gospel-centered. Uh, perhaps in Christian bookstores, you'll see that there are some, some books being sold that are gospel-centered books or the Gospel Coalition and so on. Um, I want to be real clear as to what it is that we mean in 2017 when we're talking about the, the gospel. What is the gospel that is at the center of gospel centered that in this new year you would know Jesus as he has actually revealed himself not some Jesus that you would assume him to be or presume him to be not even a Jesus that you would demand that he be you know what that's like in prayer when you're praying along and you find yourself making demands of Jesus that somewhere along the line of your prayer you realize may not even be in line with his character or what he's doing in your life at present. And so I want to ask three questions during the course of the text. I want to ask, what do you know about Jesus? Who is the Christ? And what does it mean to follow after this Christ? And so I want to begin, before we read our text, by simply asking you, how do you know Jesus? What do you know about him? How how did you first hear about Jesus? What was it like when you first heard the gospel and then received it? And and here's a question, not just how did you first come to know Jesus, but why did you first come to trust Jesus? I think that why question is a very, very important question. Because hidden underneath of all of our whys, there is an ounce of idolatry. And I'll show you what that means in just a moment. Uh, perhaps you, uh, when you first heard of Jesus, you were in a situation of hardship and someone came alongside of you with gospel comfort and pointed you to him, pointed you to his gospel. And in a desire to overcome the hardship that you were in, you cried out to Jesus for help, right? Why would you do that? Because Jesus is a help for those who are in a time of need. That's why. But Perhaps there were some other things that were going on in your heart at the same time. I know that for myself, um, I know that maybe for many of you, you've been around Jesus your whole life. Like when I said, how did you first hear about Jesus? You're like, I don't remember. It was, it was so far back. It was before I started making memories that I first heard about Jesus. And I've heard about him ever since. Perhaps Jesus is something more like your Aunt Gertrude, just sort of always there. You know, like she's just always there at all the family functions. There's Aunt Gertrude and Jesus, just always hanging around our family. And perhaps you aren't able to answer the question because you're, you say, I, I'm not sure that I really know who Jesus is fully yet. And perhaps I, have not, I haven't placed my faith in him. I don't, I don't know what that's quite like yet. And that's part of the reason why I'm here. I'm asking some questions. Perhaps you're in one of those hard times right now. Well, underneath of all those questions are some questions about what do you believe Jesus is? If you came to him in a time of hardship, inevitably he is a helper, right? That's true. If you grew up with him, he is a friend. He is a father. He's a companion. He's someone who is near and close. Or perhaps because you've been around him so much, he's someone who is quite distant, difficult to get to know. I want to look at Peter in Mark chapter 8. And what we're going to see is Peter came to know Jesus in a really interesting way. He was a fisherman. In Mark 1.17, it says, Jesus came to 
Peter and Andrew, and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Peter and Andrew were casting their nets into the sea and here this rabbi comes along and cries out, follow me. Well, what do you do if you're a fisherman and your dad was a fisherman, you're a fisherman and you'll always be a fisherman and a rabbi comes along and calls you to follow after him. And that's an invitation to come and become like him. Well, you go. And what Jesus was doing is Jesus was beginning to reveal something uh, to Peter about himself and call him to himself. In fact, along the way, Jesus continues to shape Peter's view of who Jesus is, even after he first meets him, all the way to one of the stories was Jesus was out in a, a boat with the disciples and he was resting and then a storm comes up. Are you familiar with that story? And Jesus is, is resting. The disciples are all, all, you know, scared. They're mostly fishermen. And, and certainly a storm is one of the fishermen's greatest fears. And so Jesus stands up in the middle of the storm and he cries out to the storm, peace, be still. And it was calm. And Jesus and Peter begins to see things about Jesus. He did not first know. He did not know that when he stepped out of his boat, he was going to follow after one that could calm the wind and the waves. Who is this Jesus? As Jesus continually shapes our understanding of who he is. Well, the Gospel of Mark, to give us just a little bit of context, the Gospel of Mark is an incredibly um, Moving. It's almost like a comic book. I mean, it's just one scene after another. Uh, if you're just bored and you want to read a good story, go to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And you see it's a fast-paced and action-packed. It's filled with miracles. It's filled with teachings. It's just a moving Gospel. And then in the end of chapter 8, it turns on a dime from fast-paced action to teaching about what He will do and then demonstration of what he did. So that's where we are. We are at the place where it turns on a dime, verse 27. I invite you to follow along with me. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked the disciples, what do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, this is key, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after the three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter told, took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." 
And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for recording this incredible account in the Gospel of Mark. Thank you for preserving it for us. And thank you for preserving us to this place to hear it. I pray, Lord, this morning that it would be obvious and evident that it is your gospel that is at work within us. Your gospel is held up to be excellent and that you would make out of us a people who both know you and knowing who you actually are and being transformed by you, we would become a people who would give our lives for your sake and for the sake of your gospel. I pray that that is the work that you would do through your word and by your spirit this morning in our midst. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the setting, verse 31, where really our text begins this morning, the setting is Peter has just confessed the Christ. This is a momentous moment. In fact, the whole scriptures turn in in the gospel of Mark on this verse, on this confession of Jesus confessing, you are the Christ. And Jesus immediately begins to teach them. Here's Peter. He says he's read the, the prophets. He's read the scriptures and he knows that the anointed one was coming. And now he realizes he's standing in the very presence of the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king who was long promised. And as soon as Peter makes this confession to Jesus, that, that Peter knows everyone else doesn't know who Jesus is. But Peter, with his confession, revealed from the Father, knows who Jesus is. And then Peter, right after, I'm sorry, then Jesus, right after Peter says who Jesus is, begins to explain, well, let me tell you who the Christ is. You know I'm the Christ, but let me tell you who the Christ is. And he says, verse 31, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the th- on, after three days rise again. <laughs> and, and Peter says, no. No, that, you're the Christ. You're, you're the Messiah that I was talking about. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about with all this suffering and, and dying thing. I'm, not talking, uh, I'm, t- I'm talking about an anointed king who rescues the people, not a dead king. You see, Peter's confession was incomplete. He confessed that Jesus was the Christ, but he had a misplaced understanding of who the Christ is. And so Peter walks over to the one that he had just confessed is the anointed king, and he says to the anointed king, hey king, come here, come here, come here. Let me tell you a couple things as your trusted advisor. Let me tell you, this this suffering and death stuff, that's got to stop, right? How many times... Do we grab Jesus by the shoulder and begin to explain to him what it means to be the Christ? Friends, this is, this is Peter. He is bold, but he's just like us. How many times have we come to confess who Jesus is? We know who he is because he's helped us. He's called us. And we spent time with him. And then there's something that is revealed in the Scriptures about who Jesus is, something that He says who He is, or something that He is doing in our midst, and we realize that's not the Jesus that I thought I knew, but that's the Jesus that He seems to confess that He is. And how often do we pull Him aside and begin to correct Him? But the King, 
The king won't put up with it. You see, Jesus is the anointed king. And he's not going to put up with rebellion in his ranks with Peter here trying to be his trusted counselor. And so Jesus stops Peter in his tracks. Look at verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Time out. Right? He just, Peter just makes the confession that Jesus is the Christ. And this rebuke couldn't be any stronger. You are not, listen, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, what Jesus was revealing to Peter and to the disciples about who the Messiah is, this suffering, rejected, dying, and resurrected Messiah, threatened to rob Peter of his little Messiah. And Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with robbing Peter of his little Messiah. You see, Peter turned to what he knew about Jesus and turned what he knew about Jesus into an idol by clinging to ignorance rather than to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's huge for us. How often do we cling to what we think we know about Jesus and we turn it into an idol by ignoring what the Scriptures reveal to us about who Jesus actually is? We cling to our ignorance rather than growing in a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus, I need you to be my, like my little idol. Will you please stop talking? I already confessed who you are. You see, Jesus is huge. That's an understatement. Read the Scriptures and you see that He is the Creator and Sustainer of all things. Colossians tells us that He's the image of the invisible God. How can we not be ignorant? How can we not be ignorant of who Jesus is if He's beyond our capacity to even comprehend? But what God expects is He doesn't expect us to know everything about Him. This is crucial. He doesn't expect us to know everything. But what He does expect is for us to believe what He has revealed. And as He reveals it, that we would come to know Him better. You see, in 2017, here in January, we're going to spend some time um, reading a book and reflecting with the Scriptures on the idea of the habits of grace, or the means of grace, or the spiritual disciplines the means of Scripture reading and, and prayer and the fellowship of the saints. And in all those things, those are God's means that He's given to us by which we come to know Him better. And the things that we know about Jesus are going to be challenged. Will we, are we willing to be shaped and formed into His image? Are we willing to not only know new things about Him, but walk as if what we know about Him is actually true? In other words, will we believe when we walk in the obedience of faith. When we know more about Jesus, always it challenges our idols. You see, we can either be transformed by the renewing of our mind, which is what the Scriptures tell us to be, or we can be hardened by sin and its deceitfulness. We can protect our idols. Even, even, and in the church this is often the case, even if our idol is a, is a misshapen view of who Christ is. You see, that's what Peter had. He, had. he had the Christ. He just had a misshapen view of a Christ. He had a Christ that doesn't suffer and die. He is a Christ that rules and reigns, right? 
The Christ that sets up His kingdom. And, and perhaps, I mean, just maybe, I mean, not trying to presume or anything, but Peter is kind of his right-hand man. To be the advisor of the great king, the Christ? Now that rocks. But to be the advisor and right-hand man of someone who goes to a cross and suffers and is rejected and dies, and I don't know about this rejected, this resurrected thing. See, it doesn't fit within Peter's view of who the Christ is. And so he clings to what is actually an idol. An idol with Jesus' name under it. But it's still an idol. I hope that this stops you in your tracks as well. Right at the beginning of 2017, right in the middle of making resolutions, just as Matt pointed us to, right in the middle of these things that that would stop us in our tracks and, and that this would be our prayer for January. Lord God, I must know more of you. I must know according to your revealed word who you actually are. Shape me according to it. So the question then becomes quickly, who is the Christ, therefore? If, if the, the Christ is, is not the Christ that is viewed in Peter's mind way back in verse 29, but this Christ is being revealed to us in verse 31 and on, who is this Christ? Well, up to this point in Mark, I find something really interesting. In, in the church, you often hear people talk about Jesus the helper, Jesus the healer, Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the teacher. You see, all of that is the Jesus of Mark chapter 1 through 8. This great teacher, this great powerful man who is in our midst, this God-man even, who is able to heal the sick and cast out demons, right? Powerful. And friend, he's the disciple maker, right? We love this Jesus, but the fact is you don't just need the Jesus of the first half of Mark. We tend to cling to that Jesus. The Jesus who's the helper, the compassionate one, the, the educator, the good teacher, the, the one who gives a second chance and a do-over. But that's not all of the Jesus who actually is. You see, if you just worship a Jesus of the first half of Mark, you're worshiping an idol. Because he's revealed to us more of who he is. And what we realize is that we don't just need a Jesus of the first half of Mark, we need the Jesus of the whole of Mark. The great and powerful teaching one who came to suffer, be rejected, who was killed, and who is risen. It's what we see that he reveals about himself in verse 31. Uh, verse 31 in most of my Bibles is underlined like crazy. It's such an important gospel verse. I think it's the reason why the whole book turns. I think the book doesn't turn on Peter's confession. I think it more turns on what Jesus reveals right here. Because from the moment he says this, he goes about doing this. Jesus didn't have to go to Jerusalem, but he went to Jerusalem. And he went to Jerusalem knowing exactly what was before him. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. To be gospel-centered is to have at the center of our gospel the fact that Jesus is this one who suffers, the one who is rejected, the one who is killed, and the one who is risen. He suffered. Why? So that you and I, all who would place their faith in Him, would not suffer the pains of hell. He was rejected. But He was rejected so that we would not be rejected by our Creator and our Redeemer. He died so that there would be no eternal death for all who place their faith in Him. And He rose so that all who place their faith in Him would have 
eternal life. I want to read for you Isaiah 53. Great verse to jot down in the margin of your Bible. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. And I wonder, Peter knew the Scriptures. He knew the prophets. Did he know this one? Isaiah 53, 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, what what Peter did is he pulled Jesus aside and he rebuked him. He said, I don't want your wounds, I don't want your piercing, I don't want your crushing. But he was crushed for your iniquities, Peter. But his wounds are the means by which you would be healed, Peter. The very miracles that you have been seeing that would lead you to say, you're the Christ, are nothing compared to what he is going to do by means of his wounds, Peter. Peter was holding on to a little Messiah. And I love this. I'm going to read verse, 7, verse 31 again. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise. Verse 32, And he said this plainly. So straightforward, so clear. It's not hidden and veiled in a parable like he did for the crowds. He said this plainly to them. If the plain gospel of a suffering, dying, rejected Messiah isn't at the center of your gospel, your gospel is insufficient to save. What is it the the center of the gospel about which we say we are gospel-centered? The center of that gospel that that Jesus, Jesus says more plainly than he says anything else in all of the gospels is the fact that he would suffer. He would be rejected, that he would be killed, and he would rise. And if it is not the gospel that we have, then the gospel that we have is insufficient because it can't meet the real needs of the human soul. The gospel that we would have would be leaving us in ignorance because it can never redeem. And the real tragedy is that we would be chasing after a man-made Christ idol. What if you spent your whole life in church? What if you spent your whole life doing all the religious things, chasing after Jesus? I mean, this statue has a name of Jesus under it. All to find out that the one that you were chasing after was an idol. That's scary. And before I leave you just sitting there scared, he reveals to us who he is. There is a means by which we can be corrected. And it is to listen and to listen with faith to what he has revealed about himself. You see, Jesus doesn't leave Peter in the dark. He reveals to Peter who he is. And he says it plainly. Friends, we don't have to be afraid that we would run to the end of our lives and realize that we were chasing after an idolatrous Jesus. If we would go to the Scriptures and seek Him out and seek Him out and with faith, we can know who He actually is. That's so much of the reason why we're going to spend the time in the habits of grace. 
I want to share with you just very quickly a bit of my testimony, the way that I formed my own little Christ idol. I was a quiet kid. I was a compliant kid. You know, you hear that the kids are a quiet kid, and you're like, oh, that's nice. When you hear compliant kid, you're like, that might be nice. But the thing about a compliant kid is they grow up pretty fearful, often seeking people's approval. They're nice, but they don't know who they really are because all they're doing is complying to what other people would have of them. Of course, I had good parents who required good things, and so I grew up a good kid. By the time I was four years old, I realized, um, especially as a compliant kid, they can learn this sort of thing pretty quickly. I realized that I, I wasn't achieving the level of compliance that I knew I should achieve. And it's one thing to not achieve that for your parents and have them look at you funny. You see, I got like three spanks the whole time growing up because all they had to do is look at me funny, right? And I'm like, oh boy, I'm going to clean this up. And, and, and then I realized very young that it wasn't just my parents who had held out for me a, a righteous requirement. I realized that there was a God and I had broken his law. I mean, that's so simple. It's, it's plainly said. And so I went to my mom and I said, Mom, I think I have a problem. I think I'm a sinner. And um, she began to explain the gospel to me, the way that Jesus suffered, was rejected, the way he was killed and was resurrected, so that though I, with all of my efforts at compliance, though I fall short, she said, most of these words, though all of that is true, she and my dad explained to me that Jesus had died in my place so I wouldn't have to be afraid and so that I could have his approval and acceptance. Friends, that's good news. That's the real Jesus. That is the Christ, the gospel that is at the center. But from that place, I began to take that Jesus who really is and in ignorance fashion an idol of my own formation. You see, after my parents' divorce, I found out that a quiet kid doesn't have a whole lot going on. Just sort of lost. Parents divorced at about twelve years old, and um, I found out that when my youth, when my brother's old youth pastor moved back into town and started a youth group, and he invited me over there, that a quiet kid could find a place in the world in a youth group because the youth pastor was kind and accepting, and he led the other kids to be kind and accepting. They actually invited me to stuff, and I said yes, and then I went and had fun, like it was the weirdest thing. And I, I realized that what I, what I really wanted is I wanted a place where Jesus could make me feel accepted. And here's what's crazy about being a quiet, compliant kid growing up in a broken home is that I realized that in youth group, I could have opportunities. That this was a place, it wasn't like school, but this is a place where the youth pastor asked me to do stuff and all the other kids thought it was cool that I would do those things. And I shared my testimony and sometimes I taught and I taught backyard Bible studies and they called me a missionary, right? And they gave me little cards that said that I was certified to share the gospel. Like, do you need a card to be certified to share the gospel, you know? And um, I realized that, wow, the church and Jesus is a place where I can have opportunities. I even spoke in front of about a thousand people one time, quiet, compliant kids speaking in, I was about 14 years old at the time, speaking in front of about a thousand people. And then I realized that you can have significance. I realized that in the middle of all this, a quiet kid can actually be listened to. 
See, I became a youth pastor and a Christian school teacher. As a Christian school teacher, because I was a quiet, reflective person, sometimes I noticed other kids were having troubles who didn't feel very listened to, and so I became the dean of students at that school. And they recognized that, wow, this guy can actually help people. And so I began to find significance there, and then I became a pastor, and I was ordained, and people said, you'll be a great pastor someday, sweetie. And I became a, a great pastor someday, and, and I found that people would listen to me. I found significance there, and then I became a church planter. And I've found out that Jesus rocks because not only does he forgive me of sins and stuff, but he also gives a, a quiet, compliant kid from a broken home significance. I wonder in your journey, what are the things that have been like, yeah, he forgives my sins and all, but he also gives me this and it's, I really kind of like it. What is it about Jesus that has become the thing above the center thing? You see, about eight years ago now, I went to a conference of the, together for the gospel where the gospel is at the center. And uh, R.C. Sproul and John Piper talked about a Jesus who suffered. A Jesus who died worse than insignificant. He died utterly shamed. On a cross, on a tree, a man who dies on a tree is shamed. He was rejected by the Father because of my sin. And he was rejected in my place. And I be- realized I began to make out of Jesus a means to obtain something that was not what the fullness of what Jesus had to give to me. That in a pursuit for significance as a quiet, compliant kid from a broken home, that perhaps what I could have is, is Jesus, and that I could give up any sense of significance, and I could give up any sense of approval in this world and say, Jesus, if I have you, it is enough. And if what I do is to your glory, it is enough whether anybody sees me doing it or not. So that at the end of the day, when you share the gospel with someone, if your gospel was like that when I would share the gospel growing up, so often I would share my testimony about how God took a quiet kid and made him something. And I realized I wasn't sharing the gospel at all. You see, the gospel is when you take a holy, glorious God and make him nothing for my sake. Friends, if that's not at the center of the gospel, it's not. The gospel. And that crucified God is resurrected and vindicated. And insignificant people like you and me can be with him in glory. But there's one step. One step before we jump there. And oh, we jump there, we ignore this next passage like crazy. And even when we read it, we're not sure what to do with it. You see, the next passage in verse 34 says, Jesus called the crowd to him with the disciples. Now listen, Jesus is not accustomed to calling crowds to him. Everywhere Jesus was going, the crowds were pressing in on him so that he had to escape. But he says, suffer, reject, die, and whatever resurrect is about. And you've got to call the crowds. And he calls the crowds into him. And he says, verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Does that sound like worldly acceptance and significance to you? Does that sound like worldly prosperity and 
and a good life? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What does a suffering, rejected, dying and resurrected Jesus at the center of the gospel mean for those who follow after that Jesus? This is a necessary implication that Jesus is a suffering Savior and Redeemer, is foundation. You see, I can handle the content of the gospel that Jesus has to suffer, that Jesus has to be rejected, that Jesus has to die, and that Jesus rose. It's, I get nervous when Jesus starts to talk about the implications of what that means to follow after him. Do you see what I'm saying? Most of you have been totally cool with me up to this point. You're like, oh, I'm so glad to have a pastor that actually preaches the gospel and talks about how Jesus died and rose. But are you okay with the next step? That if we follow after that Jesus, it means that you and I also lose our life. Whatever it is that we might be prone to cling to, that you and I might actually be rejected by this world in order to follow after, in the process of following after him. Jesus is so kind. He teaches it. He could have said, Mark could have said it again. And he said this plainly to them. Because it's so plain and clear. It goes like this. You're going to lose your life. You are going to lose your life for something. It's either going to be losing this life in this world, for this world, or you're going to lose your life to Christ for Christ. But you're going to lose your life. Which will it be? He's so kind. He makes it so clear. You're going to lose your life for whatever you give it to. Where are you spending your life? Where is your time, talent, and treasure? Where is it being spent? And that is what, friends, we will receive. Here's a diagnostic question. Does what you know of Jesus, your, your shape of the gospel, like if I asked you, what is the gospel? Like many of you who are partners, you filled out the, the partnership information form and you shared what you think the gospel is. Does the gospel that you ascribe to, that you confess, that you believe, does it require that you lose your life? If it doesn't, friends, it's not the gospel. It's plain, it's clear. We have a confession. It's three parts right in this passage. You can go back to it and remember it again. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus explains what the Christ does. And Jesus explains what that means for those who follow after him. Do you see it? It's plain and clear. And if we don't, if what we know of who Jesus is doesn't require that we lose our lives in following after him, it's not the gospel that we have at the center you see, Peter's fascinating. He moves from a boastful, bearing a sword in the face of those who would arrest Jesus sort of guy to a guy that would confess the Christ and wind up crucified, upside down, likely, 
giving his life as a martyr for the sake of Christ. Giving up his life for Christ. Peter would confess a king, wants to follow after him, wants to rule with him, not with suffering. Peter's revealing he's got himself a power idol, but the true Christ stands up and he reveals himself for who he is. And he's not done with Peter. He doesn't leave Peter simply rebuked, but he continues to work in Peter's life and and call him up and see Peter run away and then call him back and then restore him in in beautiful repentance after the resurrection. And as, G- as Peter finally sees who Jesus is, he moves from one who was, had a power idol, from one who was too weak to stay up and pray, who scattered like all the others, who s- scared into denial, and into one who would suffer his own death on a cross. You see, here's the thing. What you know of Jesus, as he kindly sanctifies you by showing you more of himself, it changes who we are. Or it's not the gospel. That's what 2017 holds for us. Do you believe in the Jesus who actually is? Are you pursuing more of who the Jesus who actually is? And if so, it means you're going to die and get Jesus. The passage in verse 38 says that he is coming and he's coming in the glory of his father with all the holy angels. And that is what is for those who would lose this world, who would gain the glorious presence of our God. Friends, I I hope that a knowledge of the gospel and this gospel at the center would compel us to pursue Who is this Jesus? What are the things that are misshapen about me? What are the things that I quickly pursue? What what is the shape of my week? What is the trajectory of my week that I say, if I can only make it to this, then everything's going to be okay. You know? Maybe you're not living for the weekend. What are you living for, though? I hope that as you loosen your grasp on those things because you're seeing who Jesus is, that it would become an encouragement for a people about to die. Because as we lose the grasp of this world, it feels like dying to old desires. It feels like dying to the desires of the flesh. But it feels like being placed in us the desires of the Spirit. And the Spirit, friends, is our comforter. The Spirit is our encourager. And he will encourage us and keep us and help us and remind us in this quest to know Jesus and to be shaped by him. It's my prayer for Coast in this coming year that the Lord would show us who he is, but he would also cause us to to become a people who are in, in in a hot pursuit of who he actually is, who are We've always said from the beginning of Cross Point Coast that the mark of Coast would be a people of repentance. That if there's any true spiritual discipline that we have, it would be the discipline of repentance. That we would be a people quick to say, that's not what I believed about who Jesus was. I mean, not functionally. I mean, I could confess it. I could write a paper about it. But I haven't walked like that. And that we would become a people who are actually being shaped in our pursuit of who Jesus is. Quick to repent 
of the idols. Quick to repent of the, the false beliefs about who God is. Quick to repent of the way that our lives don't reflect this actual Jesus. And then to cling to him and with joy, arm in arm, lose our lives in this world for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel, the glory of God and the good of his church. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love you because we have seen that you have loved us. You've loved us well. You've been so kind. You pulled the disciples aside. You called the crowds together and you said things plainly to them. We can know the gospel. We can know who you actually are and not live in fear. We have the good deposit of the Holy Spirit that would keep us. That when the benediction is given at the end of the service, that the Lord would bless you and keep you. That is evidence that you have loved us and that you will keep us in your love. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would make out of this people a people who look like a people who have been loved by a great God. Loved by the particular God, this Jesus. That we would become a people who look like people who have followed after one who gave his life to save many. That we would look like a people who were, didn't flinch at rejection. That we would look like a people in the middle of those difficult things who look like a people who expect resurrection. And so we aren't glum. We're not dying. We're resurrecting. We're being made again and made new. And pray that, Lord, that, that as you do that in us, this year that it would be compelling to the lost and dying around us who are giving their lives to the world and gaining a dying world. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your kindness in revealing to us the gospel. I pray that you would compel us to give our lives not only for your sake, but for, as your scripture teaches us, for the sake of your gospel. And certainly that means your gospel's proclamation in our neighborhoods and workplaces and schools and homes. Thank you, Lord. We pray all these things in your great name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.